You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Wednesday, AKA the Saturday of the week. And we've got a great show for you today. Coronavirus is getting teenagers drunk. The LAPD is creating more gangs. And you'll never guess who Donald Trump is horny for this time. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick it off with Ivanka Trump, senior aide to the president and winner of Take Your Daughter to Work Day. For the last week, many liberals have been calling for a boycott of Goya products after the company's CEO publicly praised Trump. And yesterday, Ivanka came to her daddy's defense, influencer style. Leading the news, a can of beans could open up a whole can of worms for Ivanka Trump. Critics raised ethics concerns after the president's daughter and senior advisor seemingly endorsed Goya beans on Twitter. The move comes a week after the company's CEO praised Mr. Trump at a White House event. In last night's tweet, she's holding a can of black beans with the tagline, if it's Goya, it has to be good in both English and Spanish. Critics pointed out that Ivanka may have violated an ethics law that forbids White House employees from endorsing any product, service, or enterprise. Okay, that news is shocking. There are still ethics laws? I mean, I just assumed after Trump became president, the Office of Ethics Violations got converted into a storage closet for all of his old KFC buckets. Clearly, Trump's ethics office is just going along with whatever he does like it's normal. I mean, they're probably like the contractors at Jeffrey Epstein's house. So you want a cage in the middle of your living room, okay? And, oh, it's to worship Satan. Okay, okay. well, I'll get a quote to you ASAP. Now, in the face of all these ethics complaints, Donald Trump responded by doing an even more elaborate Goya ad of his own. Yes, earlier today, the president released a photo of himself promoting a line of Goya products from the Oval Office. I mean, I'm glad the president is using his desk for probably the first time in months, but come on guys, you gotta admit, this is pretty embarrassing. The dude doesn't look like a president. He looks like a local athlete who retired 15 years ago and is desperate for money. Seriously, this shit looks like the end of The Shining if the movie was sponsored by bodegas. And it's crazy how everything has become politicized these days, even beans. Liberals are out there saying, boycott the beans. And then Trump fans are like, we're gonna elect this can of beans to Congress. If this is gonna happen with all foods, well then I'm calling dibs on water. Yeah, water, water represents my political beliefs and chocolate chip cookies too. But enough about bean Ghazi. Because while Trump is developing a side career in canned goods, his niece has become a best-selling author with a new tell-all book about the president's personal life. And based on her interviews, this is not a book Donald Trump would want to read if he could read. What's the single most important thing you think the country needs to know about your uncle? He's utterly incapable of leading this country. And it's dangerous to allow him to do so. Based on what you see now or what you saw then? Based on what I've seen my entire adult life. And if you're in the Oval Office today, what would you say to him? Resign. Whew. Can you imagine having that kind of relationship with your uncle? Rather than the normal kind, you know, where your uncle buys you birthday presents for you until sometime in your teens, then gradually forgets that you exist. 
Now, the book was released yesterday and it's already shot to number one on Amazon. And two things in the book have stood out so far. First, that Trump paid someone to take the SATs for him. And you know, I'll be honest, I'm not even mad about that. I'm mad that he didn't keep that attitude as president. Say you're president, but then pay someone else to do the job. Like Hillary, she's free. She could have done all the work. And then as Trump, you could have read all the speeches. Today, my administration announces that we're increasing funding for affordable housing. Oh, wow. I didn't see that coming. And the second shocking revelation in this book is when Mary Trump writes that Donald once saw her in a bikini and said, holy shit, Mary, you're stacked. That is so gross. All of a sudden, your uncle picking his toes at the dinner table doesn't seem so bad now, does it? Because I mean, I knew Donald Trump was a creep, but his own niece? Like, is there anything that this guy won't get horny from? I'm pretty sure if you taped a picture of some breasts to a tree, Trump would walk by like, damn, Redwood, I had no idea. Now, you might be shocked at how gross the president can be to members of his own family, but you won't be if you've been watching our show. Because as we've been reminding you for years and years now, don't forget, Donald Trump wants to bang his daughter. Yeah, I know, I know, it's disgusting. Okay, so we've talked about Trump's daughter and we've talked about Trump's niece, but what about Trump's bitch? You guys remember Jeff Sessions? Trump's first attorney general and America's smallest Confederate monument? Well, before he worked at the White House, Sessions used to protect a pot of gold. But before that, he was a senator from Alabama, a job that he had hoped to go back to next year. But unfortunately for Jeff, it is not to be. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' bid to reclaim his Alabama Senate seat has come to an end this morning. Former Auburn University football coach and political newcomer Tommy Tuberville scored the Republican nomination, beating Sessions by a 22-point margin. Sessions was the first senator to endorse Donald Trump in 2016, but he famously fell out of good graces by refusing to intervene in the Russia probe. So this time around, President Trump backed Tuberville. And let me say this about the president in our relationship. I leave with no regrets. And I think it's time for this Republican Party to listen to the Donald Trump agenda. Well, I'm sorry, what? It's time for the Republican Party to listen to the Trump agenda? It's time? What have they been doing for the past four years? The only way the Republican Party could become more on board with Trump is if they replaced the GOP elephant with the one that his sons killed. And to be honest, I feel sorry for Jeff Sessions because he was in a difficult position here. All right, because on the one hand, Trump has destroyed his career and humiliated him for the past four years. But on the other hand, Jeff Sessions has to remain loyal until the Donald gives him a piece of clothing. But let's move on to the Black Lives Matter movement. The reason all the brands you follow started using black models this past month. Over the last six weeks, America has been waking up to the way police specifically target black people. And now some Los Angeles police officers are facing the consequences. Well, State Attorney General Javier Becerra has revoked access to records generated by the LAPD for the Cal Gang database. LAPD Chief Michael Bohr withdrew from that program after an internal audit uncovered significant misuse of the gang tracking tool. Criminal charges have been filed against three officers accused of falsifying records. The department believes those people that officers stopped were labeled as gang members or gang associates. More than a dozen officers are still under investigation. Holy shit. Cops in the LAPD 
have been charged with putting innocent people into a gang database. And the reason they allegedly did it is that the officers' performance reviews were based partly on how many gang members they dealt with each day. So to make their bosses happy, they just said everyone they stopped was in a gang. And this is basically the equivalent of putting your Fitbit on your dog to get your steps in. Except instead of cheating yourself, you're cheating innocent people's ability to get jobs or housing and undermining community trust in law enforcement. And you don't think about this, but this is bad news for the gangs too. I mean, think about those gangs. They thought their membership was way higher than it was. Recruitment is through the roof, guys. Now we can finally afford that pool table. And you see, this is one of the biggest problems with policing in America. Police are incentivized to create criminals and crime because they get paid if they do. If you pay them more, if there's more crime, they want to create more crime and more criminals. But if they lived in a system where they were trying to just protect and serve, they wouldn't need to do this. And this is the reality of being black in America. It's almost impossible not to get tangled up with the legal system in some way at some point in your life. And a new story out of Michigan shows how it can even happen to children. A Michigan teenager reportedly had her probation revoked after she failed to complete online coursework for school. The 15-year-old, only identified as Grace, is now in a juvenile detention center. ProPublica reports she has been there for over a month and was originally sentenced to probation for stealing and fighting with her mother. The judge in her ruling said this wasn't punishment. This was a way that she thought Oakland County could best help this girl. This student was placed in detention on May 14th. She remains there today. This is truly one of the most fucked up stories I have ever seen. A 15-year-old steals something at school, gets put on probation, and now months later during the pandemic, she gets arrested and locked up because she didn't do her homework online. I mean, it's crystal clear at this point that this system is set up to punish people rather than help them. Because I don't know about you, But when I was in school, kids didn't get arrested for stealing. Like when I was in the seventh grade, Darlington Machila stole a Game Boy from Fison Pillay. But the school didn't call the police. The teachers just made us hold a fake trial in the classroom to see who was guilty. And then once we reached the verdict as kids, we decided that the punishment was death. Now look, in hindsight, that was a little extreme, especially considering that I was the one who actually stole the Game Boy. But the point is we handled it internally as a school. No need for police. If you ask me, the root cause of all of this is that in America, black children are not seen as children. Whether it's a 15-year-old girl in Michigan or Tamir Rice in Cleveland, American society acts like black people don't have children. They just give birth to smaller black adults who are born criminals. So look, it's clear that as much progress has been made recently, there's still a very long way to go in this country. And it doesn't help that the guy at the very top is still very much in denial. President Trump attempting to shift the focus once again. He now says when it comes to police shootings of black Americans, white people have it worse. Why are African-Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. Okay, okay. Setting aside the fact that black people are disproportionately stopped, arrested, and killed by the police, what is Trump's argument here? Because this reporter was like, cops are killing a lot of black people, and Trump's response was, no, you idiot. 
They're killing everybody. These cops are lunatics. Blacks, whites, browns. All lives don't matter. I mean, it, it actually almost sounds like Trump is one step away from defunding the police because of how they treat white people. And you know what? I, I don't agree with his logic, but if it gets us to meaningful police reform, I'll take it. I call it defund plus plus. Okay, we're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, we'll tell you how coronavirus is turning young people into old people. So don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. And yes, we are still social distancing because coronavirus is still out here. Now, in some good news, I know we don't get to say that much, but in some good news, we've just learned that all 45 people in a major vaccine trial successfully developed antibodies. The only bad news is that a vaccine isn't coming until next year at the earliest. And in the meantime, America just set another new record for daily coronavirus cases. So congratulations to those 45 people. I mean, not only do you have antibodies, you're probably gonna inherit the earth. So have fun repopulating. And if you get hungry, there's a can of Goya beans in the White House. Now, until there's a vaccine, the one thing everyone must do is wear a mask when they go out in public. In fact, the CDC director said yesterday that America could get coronavirus under control in four to eight weeks if everyone just wore masks. But instead, people are doing shit like this. Some Americans openly rebelling against basic COVID-19 messaging. In Jacksonville, Florida, this rally to support a local lawmaker who filed a lawsuit Monday against a recently mandated mask policy. New video of an outdoor dance party in Philadelphia showing people packing the streets despite coronavirus restrictions. There was a DJ, there was music, but little social distancing and few face masks. A restaurant in Florida is offering free food to guests who aren't wearing face masks. The grilled cheese bar said it was not demanding face masks. The first 100 people to enter without a mask receives a free meal. Oh boy, that's a cool promotion. Free dinner for you and a free buffet for coronavirus. I can't think of anything less worth dying for than a grilled cheese. That is the one thing everyone can make at home. Like if you're gonna make people risk their lives, at least throw a poached egg on there or something. Cause those are hard to make. Cause sometimes the vinegar and the thing and then it like floats and then it's not, then it's just, then I just say I made boiled eggs and people are like, where's the shell? I'm like, I, I do it my way. And if it makes you angry that people in the streets are ignoring the CDC, well, it gets worse. Because now the White House itself is cutting the health agency out of the loop. The CDC will no longer control coronavirus numbers. The Trump administration is asking hospitals to bypass the agency and send daily reports directly to a new system set up by the administration themselves. Four former CDC directors penned a Washington Post op-ed slamming the decision. They say it's a political move at a time when the White House just wants to reopen schools. What a fantastic idea. Instead of having the CDC count COVID cases, we can hand it over to this guy. 1.87 million tests today, so that's 1,870,000 million tests. <laughs> oh man, that is the one one hundredth time I've watched that clip and it never stops being funny. But I guess this is the blessing of the Trump presidency. You learn so much about how the government works based on what he screws up. Everyone's out there like, huh, I didn't know that hospitals sent daily reports to the CDC. But now that they're not, I'm furious about it! Now, 
One of the reasons that Trump is turning on everyone from the CDC to Dr. Fauci is because they're against his plan to reopen schools at any cost. And that's what he wants to do. He wants schools open, probably because he thinks it'll finally get Eric out of the house. But despite Trump's pressure, the experts are warning over and over again that reopening schools without containing the virus could lead to dire consequences. And that's why some teachers are now preparing for the worst. As the decision on whether to reopen Texas schools intensifies, teachers are writing open letters expressing their concerns and frustrations. On social media, educators are going as far as writing their wills, citing what they call America's decision to prioritize money over people. In addition, one teacher said she's establishing her medical power of attorney and taking out extra life insurance. Man, if teachers in America didn't already feel undervalued and disrespected, now they are being forced to literally put their lives on the line while a pandemic is still raging. Being a teacher is already hard enough. The classes are too big. You gotta spend your own money on supplies. And if you do a really good job, what do you get as a thank you? A kid brings you an apple. It's not a good gift, Billy, you little shit. They're a dollar a pound. You just put your dirty ass booger hands all over it. I mean, if I were a teacher in this situation, I'd just start suspending students for whatever reason I could just to get them out of the room. Chewing gum, suspended. Got a question wrong in class, suspended. I mean, I love kids, but I'm not dying for someone who doesn't know two plus two. So coronavirus has teachers all over America more worried than ever before. But at least many of their students are finding ways to make the most of this disaster. The pulse begins with teens taking advantage of wearing a face mask. Get this, a new viral trend on social media has them using face coverings to help them buy alcohol. Video show teens dressing as elderly people and using face masks to help conceal their identity. They're seen successfully and illegally buying booze and celebrating their success. Some of the videos have been watched more than two million times. You're dressing up like grandma, but what would grandma say about what you're doing? Yeah, I think grandma would be happy that at least someone is wearing a mask. But kids, please remember, this is a very dangerous game that you are playing. All right, because if your disguise is good enough to trick the liquor store guy into thinking that you're old, it might also be good enough to trick coronavirus too, and then you're screwed. So that's the latest on America's coronavirus journey. People aren't wearing masks, teachers are fearing for their lives, and it looks like Trump might try to fudge the coronavirus numbers. So uh, kids, please save some of that alcohol because uh, we're all gonna need it. Don't go away. Because after the break, we'll be talking about the pandemic with Representative Katie Porter, and then I'll catch up with Danai Gurira. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I got a chance to speak with Representative Katie Porter. She's a Democratic Congresswoman from California and the only single mother serving in Congress. We spoke about reopening schools and coronavirus relief funding. Check it out. Representative Porter, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. Um, California is in a really interesting place right now. Um, It seemed like everything was under control. It felt like, you know, the coronavirus numbers were stable. And then once the state opened back up, the numbers have skyrocketed, leading to further shutdowns. And now the conversation has turned to schools. You are a parent yourself, so it really makes this this conversation more interesting. What are your views on whether or not schools should open and how they should reopen? 
No, as a single, I'm the only single parent of young kids in Congress. Um, I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old. And so after playing musical chairs with Google Classroom and yelling at different kids to get on and off the Wi-Fi so I can do my own work, I think I'm as ready as any parent in the country for schools to reopen. But we all want that to be safe. And that means that the administration needs to put together a plan. And getting this administration to put together a plan is it's kind of like pole vaulting with a toothpick. They just don't seem to have the tools and be willing to deploy them. Well, I mean, you know, the argument that has come from, you know, Trump and his supporters has been that kids are not at risk and we've seen very minimal damage done to children by the coronavirus. So wouldn't the argument be for getting them all back into schools? That's what it seems like a lot of them are saying. What is your response to that argument and to parents who may agree with that sentiment? Well, I think one of the things we have to be honest about is just as we've seen this pandemic have different effects on different communities, if you're a parent who has each kid in their own bedroom and you have a device for every kid, you have Wi-Fi, and you yourself don't have a job and can help be there to log everybody on and help them find the ampersand on the keyboard for their stupid password, um, then this might be working. If you're an essential worker who relies on that school day to be able to make ends meet in your budget, having to full-time pay for childcare will be nearly impossible. We can't put kids' lives at, at risk. We have to figure out how to do this safely. And there are a lot of potential tools available, but we haven't seen the Department of Education or FEMA or the CDC really provide any support to our state boards of education um, and to our state schools of superintendents on how to do this. They're just being left to their own devices to figure it out, which is exactly what we've seen in this pandemic from the beginning. And as you said, with cases spiking around the country, that's not a good strategy. You represent Orange County. And Orange County, I mean, I, I believe that the parents there have voted on, on a school board and said, we want our kids to go back to school. What do you think the response of the government should be there? Then do schools open or is it a fight between now teachers and schools? Should the schools get the funding if the kids or the parents want the kids to go to school, but the teachers don't want to teach? How does that skirmish get handled? We absolutely need to fund our schools regardless of how they choose to provide learning. We're going to see some schools provide parents with a choice of online learning or hopefully modified safe classroom procedures. We shouldn't be using funding to jerk schools and teachers and parents around in a time of crisis in which what we all need is certainty. We have to think about balancing kids learning along with kind of keeping them safe. And I think that is gonna look different in different parts of the country. And I think it's gonna look different for different ages of children. And that's where listening to teachers and local school administrators rather than political figures is really important. I'm doing a lot of learning from my community right now about what will work for our teachers and for our students. Now, you're on the House Banking Committee. And what's been really fascinating during this period is realizing how little of the PPP money went to the underbanked, went to black people, went to women, you know, and women-owned businesses, black-owned businesses. We saw that a lot of the money went to established companies who already have a lot of money, maybe in reserves or just have, you know, turnover. And those who needed the money the most, arguably, didn't have access to it. You know, some would say if another stimulus comes, is the bank or are the banks the best people to handle this because their, their commitment is always gonna to be to their top clients first. Is there another way to do it? Is there, is there a way to force the banks or is this something that Congress is even considering seeing that so much of the stimulus money ends up in the pockets of companies that could arguably afford 
to not have it for a little bit longer than small businesses? Well, this is this is definitely something that Congress has focused on, and I think there's a, at least a partial success story here. Um, there, I've been pushing for transparency about the Paycheck Protection Program because we need to look at the data to understand who really got loans and who really didn't. We have anecdotes about people who abused the program, but I also hear every day from small business owners who got the money and it's providing a crucial lifeline for them. What Congress did is when the Paycheck Protection Program ran out of money, it was sort of oversubscribed very quickly, and we went back and nearly doubled the funding. We set aside a portion of that funding for community development, financial institutions, for credit unions, for minority serving institutions, and that worked. I have a lot of businesses who told me they didn't get help from a big bank. Um, they called them, they pestered them, they couldn't get any help. But when they went to a credit union or to a community development financial organization or even a community bank, they quickly got assistance in that second um, round of PPP funding. So I think Congress did make an important change here. Um, and I think there's a lesson for us to understand as we go forward about if we allow the nation's largest banks to administer the money and create and give them billions of dollars of fees to do so, they will have certain incentives in that system. Well, thank you so much for taking your time today. I know how much um, everybody's trying to pull you in different directions. I uh, wish you the best in California and hopefully Kids will be back in school soon and um, everyone will be back on the road to recovery. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome, thank you. Fantastic, thank you very much. I'm so jealous that you get to wear a sweatshirt. <laughs> you can too, I don't think anybody's stopping you. Oh, oh, I have a whole row of staffers stopping me. I mean, they're not here, <laughs> but virtually, right? So, um, but I will say like the greatest, I think there are a lot of women who are benefiting from work from home um, because a lot of our um, oppressive um, clothing choices are the, the shoes right. and the skirts and the things like that. So men still have to wear the tie when they get on Zoom, but I am totally in love with my flip-flops. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think there's a lot of women who are kind of seeing some of the advantage of this, so. There is, I guess we always look for the silver linings. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for being on, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Representative Porter. After the break, I'll be speaking to Wakanda's very own Danai Gurira. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. My next guest is Danai Gurira, a playwright and actor who you might know from Black Panther, Avengers, and The Walking Dead. We talked about how she's using her platform to push for social justice and equality for women and girls all around the world. Danai Gurira, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Trevor. Now, tonight, there was something you did recently that really struck me on Instagram, and that was difficult conversations with my white friends. And you posted this video, I think it was 19 minutes long, where you talked to a white friend. And I believe this is something you're going to be doing going forward. Uh, I mean, it, it feels like some people have the opposite attitude. They're like, I'm tired of talking to white people. And you've got to know, you know what? I'm gonna have these difficult conversations with my white friends. And I love all of those words, difficult conversation, white friends specifically. Tell me why, what is the messaging behind this and what are you hoping it will achieve? I've always had this uh, desire. My, my first degree in, in college was around social psychology and I was dealing with race. And I always wanted to, I actually wanted to go into that issue in a more like professional way because I always felt like we don't tend to have this conversation around how we dismantle racism in this country, which is around racial socialization and 
often that is about whiteness. But we don't often see the work happening uh, from our white, our Caucasian brothers and sisters in, in the regards of how do, how do we dismantle this issue from both sides? And so to me, it was very much about, I just was so tired of not seeing this conversation happening. And it just felt like it was something that we just miss having. So we then point out uh, an individual versus looking at a system. And right. that was this, the thing that really was like, I want to, to start really dismantling. How do, how do I contribute to the dismantling process? And have it just you, felt like having these sort of conversations was a start. Have you, have, you, have, you discovered, have you discovered anything in these conversations? Is there a light bulb that went off either in your head or in one of your white friends' heads? Was there something where you realized, oh man, we're missing something when we're talking to each other or talking at each other as, as people of different races. What was, what was one of the realizations you may have come across in these conversations? I think the key thing was really about, you know, what we, were, what we did was it was an exchange of that idea that often it's, and that's why a lot, I think a lot of black folk are like, work on it yourselves, is because it's always the burden on black people to explain and to say, this is what I go through, this is what I experience, and to have to relive and rehash things so that white people can can come on board and understand that there's a problem. Right. And what I said, what I wanted, I wanted to do an, in, an inverse situation there where actually I was putting the questions on him and the bur and saying, take this labor and let's let's see you guys get to work in this area. And uh -huh. that was the, 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 the sort of the shift, you know, and I think it's also, worthy of saying it's not about condemnation. That's not the point. And it's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna get us to a place uh, that we wanna go, which is to heal and, and to, to transform. And um, so it's, it's truly about actual like transformation, which, you know, can be a very shockingly un, unexpected experience. But yeah, that's kind of the thing I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of, I wanna continue to dig in this area with folks, I did do a talk. I've had a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Zach Quinto, and I'll be posting that soon. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that uh, you know that comes with you know the, I, the aspects of white privilege and 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 those sort of components that causes um, you know a, a disconnect you know when it comes to the that conversation between right. between black people and white people and 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 causes it to be you know, you're exaggerating or you're pulling a race card and how do we get past that and just get into the real stuff so that we can start working towards the real work, which is, you know, changing policies in this country that, that work against uh, black people and people of color as a whole. You've been somebody who's always been an advocate for, you know, social justice, who's always been an advocate for equality, whether it's been in the plays that you've written, the stories that you tell, the characters that you play, or even the work that you do. Love Our Girls is a very specific initiative that, you, that, that you've been passionate about. Tell me a little bit about it and, and why you've chosen to keep it going and what it means to you, especially during this time. The love that women and girls need, if we receive that, which comes with respect, which comes with attention, which comes with, with equity, we would be so much further along and we would see so much less problems and, and, and uh, you know, injustices that women experience. So it really stemmed from that. Like, how do we bring people on board to actually become actively connected to the, the ways that women and girls are marginalized and, and working against it? So highlighting organizations every month became the thing I really wanted to do. There's so many amazing women's organizations really fighting a really good fight. And I just wanted to give them a platform and, and give them voice. And then... <laughs> Uh, in in, the, in these present times, it, it is it is so it feels even more um, pertinent that I really keep it going and that I keep very connected to 
what's happening and the voices that need to be heard in this moment. It's a mo- it's a mo- moment we're in that we are hoping is truly a transformational moment. And how do I make sure that I'm contributing in all the ways I can? And I'm still figuring that out every day. When you look at these organizations and when you look at what we need to be aware of in society, what is something you've learned even that you could teach some of us or anyone out there who's watching to go like, oh, this is something I wish we, we paid more attention to, to get help or, 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 or rather, you know, get the necessary attention to the certain, to the places where we need it. You know, I think that the key thing that uh, has really helped me is, is leaning in on the experts. That's kind of the way in which I have found some sort of, you know, almost, almost sanity in this time is to hear from those who are on the front lines and who have a wisdom and a clarity about where we are and how we move forward. And so leaning in on folks who are paying attention to those things, and then how do we help with that information? I love what the one or one, one organized campaign did, one campaign that I've worked with for years. Um, Bono is one of the founders. And what they did uh, very recently was the Pass the Mic campaign which was so powerful, I thought, because it allowed the experts to have a mic. You know, we're at a time where we needed to hear and we need to hear from those on the front lines who can tell us how we move forward day by day. This is an ongoing, evolving issue. And to really take the, uh, they, they married the platforms of celebrities and the voices of experts. Right. And that um, they started that, and then then after that came, you know, what happened with uh, George Floyd and 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 the movement that started to happen there. So then that started to grow into uh, past the mic in that realm. So it's just a it's it's such, such a brilliant idea because they 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 hit two hundred and fifty eight million people uh, by wow. handing the the mic to the experts. Right now they are who we need to hear from the most, so we know how to get through this together. And the key thing that I keep learning is about the collaboration, the cooperation we need to have globally. And if we don't, like they, they say, no one's safe until everyone is safe. Right. And I don't think that's always how we think. There's a way that it's like, you know, this is this is our country and these are our borders, you know, and it's that's not how we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this by working as a as as a global uh, functioning movement of co- cooperation and collaboration. Hopefully next time we speak, we'll be talking about how you know, this was a moment in time and we can all live in Wakanda once again. So thank you so much for joining me um, socially distanced on the show. Um, um, have, have, have a great, great day. day. Thank you so much, Danai. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, America is facing a nationwide poll worker shortage. And because most poll workers are over 60 and COVID is still in the air, they are understandably not showing up. But fewer poll workers means fewer polling stations are open and it means longer lines that not everybody can afford to stay and wait in, especially in communities of color. But the good news is, most poll work is paid, and in some states, you can be as young as 16 to do it. So if you're interested and you have the time, this is your chance to save your grandpa, protect democracy, and get some of that moolah too. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 